There is a war being waged right now for your soul that has been going on since the beginning of time. A war that started out of jealousy for God's creation, you and I. A war for power, and the enemy will stop at nothing. He seeks to kill, steal, and destroy everything that God has created through you. It is time that you put on the whole armor of God that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. Welcome to the Warhorse Podcast, where we talk about combat, life, success, failures, and our walk with God. I'm your host, Jason Pike, former Navy SEAL, combat veteran, and follower of Jesus Christ. In this episode, I had the honor of sitting down with former SEAL and Dev Group operator Daniel Licardo. Daniel was in Bud's Class 202. He spent six years at SEAL Team 4, three years at SEAL Team 6, three years at Naval Special Warfare Training Detachment, and two years RDT&E. After his time in the military, Daniel spent two years working anti-piracy aboard the Maersk, Alabama, roughly six years working for the State Department instructing, and two years working safety and security for the oil and gas industry. In this episode, we dig deep into the psyche of man and the subconscious mind, our failures at balancing out the delicate aspects of what it means to be a warrior and protector of the home, we talk some self-defense, hazing in the teams and its purpose, personal accountability, our relationships with God, the accident that left Daniel without both of his legs, VA, medication, and thoughts of suicide. We had, I always been into uh, somewhat delving into psychology and that kind of thing. I think that had to do with early on, I was getting into the mindset of the samurai and the ronin. I've always kind of been fascinated by the ideology of the ronin, which is the masterless samurai or the lordless warrior. You know, a samurai was actually like a bodyguard, pretty much all, all, all you were as a samurai. You were a bodyguard to a lord. If you didn't have a lord or if your lord that you were protecting was killed, you would become a ronin, lordless warrior, masterless samurai, um, which is actually what I named my son. So when I was reading into that kind of stuff, I came across... A guy named two guys actually. One, Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman. He's known for the first book he wrote that everyone knows, majority of people, is On Killing. And it has to do with the psychology of shooters, shooters in warfare. Um, they talk about, you know, the uh the hit ratios in different wars with regards to Vietnam, the lack of hitting with regards to shooting people hitting their targets in uh, Vietnam, coming up to learning actually how to train the shooter to perform in battle or perform under stress, perform in the, uh, the, during the incident, so to speak, uh, the proverbial incident. And then along with Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman, I was turned on to Gavin DeBecker. Gavin DeBecker, his, his main book that most people know, if you know him, is uh, The Gift of Fear. Now, the gift of fear, that has to do with psychology and what we were talking about having to do with coincidences. What Gavin DeBecker was doing when he came when he basically came up with the idea for the book was he was counseling women, victims of rape, assault, that type of stuff. And he realized that when he was talking to these women, he was interviewing them. Uh, one incident I use as an, as an example, the woman says that uh, she came home. Uh, to her apartment building. She opened the door, which keyed opening, 
went up the stairs. The, the uh, elevator was broken. So she had to walk up like four or five flights of stairs and she had a bag of groceries in her hand. And by, by the time she got to like the fourth or fifth uh, set of stairs before she was at her apartment, the bag broke and a can of cat food fell out, started rolling down the stairs. She said she heard a voice down below that said, oh, don't worry, I got it. This was as she was starting to go towards the, uh, to chase the can. And she tells Gavin, the Becker, that it was like this twinge of this feels wrong went through her body. The guy came pretty much out of nowhere and says, oh, it looks like we have a hungry cat, you know, waiting for us. So it's basically like a forced, what he calls forced teaming. And it's different, different methodologies and different tools that people who assault other people utilize. Um, like there is no we, right? When he says we have, and it's all done to gain confidence to their victim. And he starts getting into it as far as, well, what made you, you said that you felt off as soon as you heard his voice. Basically pulls out of her is that one, she never heard any of the, the doors from the people who live in the building. She never heard any doors open and close. Um, so she, in her mind, knows subconsciously that he was hiding and waiting for her. She never heard the, the door downstairs, the main door, open and close. It was just a bad feeling. And it's sort of like the kind of thing where uh, women, when they are in an elevator, they're waiting at the elevator, the elevator doors open up, and she sees four or five guys standing there staring at her. She gets a feeling of like, I don't want to go into this. I don't want to go into this, this elevator, but if there are certain race, color, or creed that she may offend them by not getting in the elevator or waiting for the next one. So they do it and they put themselves in those situations to where, you know, they're pretty much kind of feeding themselves to the lion. With regards to Gavin to Becker, we talk about the subconscious and the conscious. When it comes to coincidences, the conscious mind picks up on things that we recognize immediately. The subconscious mind picks up on things that we will call like a gut feeling or intuition. Intuition is actually a feminine trait, very feminine. That's why women, if they typically think that their their husband's cheating on them or something like that, they're typically not wrong. And it's usually because their subconscious is picking up on little cues that their conscious mind isn't full on focusing on at that point, but they're still picking up on it nonetheless. So you might get a lot of people in trouble talking about this. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Trust your heart is what they're saying. Absolutely. They see the red flag and they just continue on no matter, yeah. you know, anyway. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So the one book that I always recommend to women, always, even men, because like I said, men will gaff it off as a gut feeling and they'll sometimes just ignore it. And they'll say, you know what? I knew that was going to happen. And it's not because, you know, it was just a coincidence or it was, you know, a gut feeling. It was because your subconscious mind is picking up on things. Now I say that and there was a study that was done. I wish I could find who did the study, but it was, you know, voiced to me a long time ago. The study that was done had to do with when thumb drives were still at like 120, not 128 kilo, or kilobytes or megabytes. Megabytes. And super, super small, like nothing compared to what it is today. And they started growing. They started being able to bit, fit more and more in those thumb drives. And somebody in their infinite wisdom decided to, you know, come up with this idea. I wonder, you know, with all this information you can, you can store on this little hard drive, I wonder how much the mind and the eye actually picks up and could actually store. In fact, I wonder if I was driving down the road 
at 55 miles an hour. And I closed my eyes to open them for a second and close them. In that brief second that I opened them up, how much information could I pick up and have to store? How much storage capacity would I need for that one, you know, millisecond? And they pretty much came up with the idea that it's infinite. You can't put a number on it. With that being said, always trust your your uh, your subconscious. Always trust that gut feeling. If your mind is telling you something, if you have that weird feeling in your in your head, there's a reason for it. So like I was saying, with regards to coincidences, there's two types. There's the type that you see or feel in your subconscious that turns into your conscious. And then there's also the, the divine. And that's my true belief. Had a friend that I haven't talked to in 20 plus years who him and I were very, very good friends, you know, best friends, almost brothers, you know, for a long period of time. And just, we had a falling out for no other reason than mis- you know, misconception and misunderstanding. Saw a post on Facebook that he had commented on and just kind of had some, a little bit of nostalgia. Like, you know, I really miss those times, you know, really miss, you know, really miss him. Good, good dude. Great friend. Really wish, you know, we get back in contact. And I swear no less than five minutes later, I get a text message from him. And not only is it just a text message, but it's a text message saying that he's in town, roughly 20 minutes away doing a class for self-defense uh, tech, tactics, stuff like that. And, you know, come out and see him. One of the things I tell women in self-defense, especially women, is never feel bad about making someone feel uncomfortable. No. There's a difference in being rude versus just making sure that you're safe. Absolutely. Let them know that you see them. Let them know that you're aware of them. I always look over my shoulder. If I feel somebody's too close to me, I'll look over my shoulder, make eye contact, and I'll actually scoot over mm-hmm. or I'll stop and let them pass. Mm-hmm. Bad guys like easy victims. Mm-hmm. For the most part, nobody likes a challenge when you're trying nope. to rob or rape somebody. Nope. And that's a, that's a challenge that I constantly, constantly have in this house. See, my fiance and her kids, because they've lived together for a long time, um, obviously, they don't look at things the way I do with regards to everything needs to be secure. I need to protect my gifts, so to speak. When I mean that, I don't mean the belongings. I'm talking about them, especially now in this situation. You know, me not being able to fully function with regards to not having legs, not being able to uh, fully protect the way I am used to being able to, um, I want to be as secure in this house as possible. And they are, they have a very laissez-faire attitude about it, you know, leaving doors unlocked and this, that, and the other. It drives me insane. Man, I feel you exactly on that. My <laughs> wife is the same way. I was jokingly before my wife and I got married, I said, you have to show me that you can shoot. First time she ever picked up a pistol. Yeah. And she killed it. But same thing. We always get into little tips about when I come home, the garage is open and it's mm-hmm. just the girls. I'm like, this cannot happen anymore. You know, at some point, what we have to do is, you know, just respect the other person's wishes. If it's not harmful to us, why don't you just go ahead and respect their wishes? And it goes both ways and give them that little bit of peace of mind. And that just goes back into actually caring about somebody and loving them on that level to where if something's wrong with you, I'll do whatever I need to do to remove that. So you don't have to worry about that stress. How can I help you be less stressful? And that's super important in relationships. Uh, most relationships are self-serving, mm-hmm. you know, and we all are at different levels. Oh, there's got to be a level of give and take. Yeah. And then what I'm talking about as far as, you know, it's my main issue. It's very different than, you know, my issue with her leaving the toilet seat up, you know, or the toilet seat down or the, you know, 
the uh, the lid mainly because our dog loves to go in and then you know drink out of the toilet and then come up and give kisses and stuff like that. That's you know <laughs> it's totally different. And I go back to what I teach. I teach security. I teach safety. And I always talk about you know a hard target voice a voice a soft target. And whenever I teach that, I usually use two examples. I'll go up on the whiteboard and I'll talk, draw two exact houses. Nothing different. They're painted the same, same number of family members in, in, the, in both houses, except this house, they have cats. This house, they have dogs. I said, if I am a burglar, if I am someone, someone that wants to go into these houses and do harm or steal something, which one is going to be the easier target? I mean, unless you're a complete and utter moron, you're going to notice that the one that has cats is going to be the one that's going to be easier. Dogs, typically you're going to get bit, especially if the dog feels that its people are going to get injured. Their people are going to get bit. So, and not only that, but they make noise when, you know, you're, when you're trying to break in. So again, soft target, just like this thing happened in uh, Colorado, you know, you had a town that's pretty much liberal, the grocery store, from what I understand, anti-gun, you're not allowed to carry in the, in the, uh, in the store. And they knew it's a soft target guy goes in and starts shooting the place up. Now I won't get into the fact that we just bombed Syria about you know a <laughs> month and a half ago. And the guy just happened to be a Syrian, Syrian refugee. And that the majority of the people that actually, the majority of the people he killed were all white. Won't go there. You're going to try to get me blocked right off the bat, right? <laughs> I know, I know. But what I'm saying is... Hey, it, so this a, podcast is not going live, <laughs> apparently. Everything on Instagram is getting blocked when they start talking That's about insane, this. That's insane, man. It's absolutely insane. But getting back to it, with regards to Gavin DeBecker and recommendations, with regards to women, I always talk about the gift of fear because it talks about trusting yourself, trusting your intuition, and trusting in re- being able to protect yourself and not feel bad about it just like we were talking about. The other books he has are Fearless, which means basically living in today's climate with regards to terrorism, people that want to hurt you, people want to take things that you have or hurt the people that you love. Um, And then one I definitely recommend for every parent is protecting the gift. And that's teaching your kids how to basically protect themselves and how to um, how you can protect your child even better. I think a lot of times we do more damage. That's what I tell people when I do life coaching behind the scenes. We spend most of our life unlearning the things that we were taught. Absolutely. Majority of the stuff we were taught may work, you know, at certain points. But if you look at most people's lives, they're unhappy. Why are you happy? Is because the way you were raised yeah. and the actions that you're actually and carrying out in your life, you think they're right because your parents did it. They're, your grandparents did it. Your yep. great-grandparents did it. So you have to break that mold at some point if you want a different life. Well, not only that, but I mean, the life that we knew growing up is completely different now. That we, it's this, I mean, it's, it's, I would say night and day, but it's beyond that, you know, compared to way we, the way we grew up to how it is now for our kids. Like, perfect example, um, this whole idea of stranger danger that whole thing that was taught, one of the biggest issues, one of the biggest uh, fallacies and misguidances, so to speak, that we've given the kids. Typically, it's not the stranger that hurts your, our children. It's typically not the, the stranger that uh, abuses our children. Typically, it's a loved one or a close friend that does the abuse, does the you know the harm, so to speak. 
one of the examples they give in the book is he does an exercise with his kids where they go into McDonald's or go into a, a fast food restaurant and he'll tell his kids after looking around the place, he'll tell his kids, Hey, go find somebody and ask them what time it is. Nine times out of 10, the kids will typically go to the same person that he had actually picked out in his mind who would be the safest person to, uh, um, to go to. And it's because kids have strong intuition. They know how to trust. They know how to look at someone because they are truly innocent. Right. Um, the other thing is we were taught when, if we ever get lost, what they always say, go find a policeman. Yep. When, and when do you see a policeman besides in their vehicle driving around? How often do you see a policeman in a target or a wall, a Walmart or at a fair or something like that? Yeah, not anymore. You used to, I was thinking about that. I went to a hotel or stayed in a hotel the other night and at eight o'clock I called the front desk and said, Hey, can you tell the people next door to turn their music down? About 4am I woke up, called them again. About 4.30 I just got up and I left. I was like, you know what? I'm going to leave. And I started thinking, I was like, man, when I was a kid, they had security guards all over the place in the hotels that sure. were roving every couple of hours. I said, I don't remember seeing any security guards at any hotel that I've stayed in from Texas to Florida to California, any of them. Well, nowadays, if they see a security guard, people <laughs> automatically think, well, if they need a security guard, that must be, that must mean that, you know, there's issues at this hotel. Don't teach your kids to go find a police officer. You know, you want to teach your kids if they get lost, go find a mother that has kids with her. No way in hell is that mother ever going to leave the uh, the department store or wherever until that kid is back with their parents. That's just the way it's, it's, that's just the motherly instinct type of thing. Like I said, there's a lot of teachings that we grew up with that are definitely not, not the way to go. I tell you, I told somebody this the other day and they looked at me like I was crazy. We had lived in a very small town, a few thousand mm -hmm. and everybody knew everybody. We yeah. screwed up and our parents were gone. Our neighbors would whoop our butt, mm -hmm. feed us and then take us home and tell our dad what we did. And we would get another whooping. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I was telling Christy about this as well. I don't, I, I'm sorry, but you know, the way I have learned throughout my career, um, what I've seen you know, some things you can't unsee. I don't trust really anybody when it regards to my kids. I really don't. There's very few people that I'll trust. Granted, there are people that I do trust, but you know, I, I take that, I'll take that, that statement back, but it's one of those things to where, you know, they used to have this, this saying that it takes a village to raise a child. I don't want the village raising my child anymore because honestly, nowadays you could be living, you know, you pull up one of those sex, um, sex offender registries and you have multiple personalities that are living all around you that have been, you know, sex offenders, this, that, and the other, whether, you know, it was a misunderstanding, the guy who's peeing in public and now all, all of a sudden he's exposing himself, that kind of thing. And he's on the registry. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who actually were offenders. And it's one of those things where if there was a sex offender in when I was, when I was growing up, honestly, they kind of <laughs> disappeared. You know, the, the fathers, the uncles, the uh, neighbors, they all got, got, I'm not saying disappeared as far as they were killed, but they were pushed out of town yeah. to where they were either beat, beat the living, they beat the living hell out of them, or they just basically moved away because they were threatened or they went to jail or there was, there was no softness on that kind of thing when I was growing up. Yeah. One of the things I do, especially on the range with trust, you know, I'll stop everybody and say, do you trust me? And everybody will say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, why? 
So one, you don't know me. So there's a couple trust factors. One, you can trust me because you know I would never intentionally hurt you. Sure. But you can't trust me because I'm human and I make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And next, you can't trust me because I'm a sinner. And if yep. we get into the biblical aspect, sure. right? So it's amazing that, like you're saying, people will trust others just off the whim. It's like, I don't, I'm very untrusting myself. Now, I don't judge anybody, sure. but you have to truly earn your way into my life. I'll talk to you. I'll help you. I'll give you the shirt off my back. But at the end of the day, there's a wall there that you cannot penetrate unless Absolutely. I allow it. And I think every, um, a lot of people are too trusting, especially in relationships. We just jump into relationships. Oh, they're good. You know, no, yeah. most people are not good. Even me right now, even as a Christian, if I was good, I wouldn't need Christ. Yeah. <laughs> I, wouldn't need, I wouldn't need God at all. Agreed. You know, I could do it all on my own. You know, the one thing that is is wrong with today is <clears throat> that I see, this is my, my personal opinion, people are not held accountable and you have to be accountable to somebody, you know, whether it be to you know, your wife, your husband, your kids, or to God, you know, you have to be accountable to somebody. And if you're not held accountable to somebody, then what's keeping you from, you know, doing things, what's, what's keeping you from sinning? What's keeping you from doing the wrong thing? Yeah. I tell you one of the biggest mistakes I hear people say is I made a mistake. And the reason someone goes out and cheats on their wife, and I know we keep using that, but that's a great example because it's very common. Mm-hmm. People, a man will go out and cheat on his wife and he gets caught and he goes, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. You didn't make a mistake. The reason why we say that we made mistakes is because we don't want to admit we're a bad person and sure. we made a deliberate, horrible choice against someone we say we loved. Yep. And it goes across the board and everything. So when you do make a mistake, quote unquote, it's very important that you recognize that a mistake is a toddler finding their way out the back door and falling in the pool and drowning. That's yep. a mistake. Yes, A choice is deliberate, knowing the repercussions and knowing what you're doing is wrong. When we start being able to define uh, mistakes versus choices, and you're going to see how really screwed up you are as an individual, just us as a whole. Absolutely. And not only that, but just basically putting other people, help, being held accountable to other people. And I say that, you know, people who look, we'll go back to it, you know, cheating. If you cheat on your loved one, if you cheat on your spouse, if you have kids, you're not just cheating on your spouse because it's not just your relationship with your spouse that you're, you know, you're screwing up. It's a relationship with your child as well, because it's not just affecting your spouse, it's affecting your child, especially if you know, divorce separation comes into play. I mean, right now I'm going through it. You know, I've been going through it for three years, probably longer. I would, it's, it's longer than now, mainly because, you know, the accident happened and, you know, I was going through some physical therapy and all that stuff to where everything was kind of put on hold. For the most part, it's one of those things to where my, I can, I can see how my son is affected by the whole thing. And it kills me mainly because I was a, ch- I was a child of divorce. You know, my parents divorced when I was three years old, and I was, I was the rope in their proverbial game of tug of war growing up. Oh, your father's this, your father did that. Well, your mother's this, your mother did that. You know, that's the one thing I always promised I would never do to my son, especially when all this stuff happened. And you know, when you make those choices, you're making them consciously. It's not. It's not even a subconscious choice. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that as Americans we're doing severely wrong is not taking adultery and stuff like that up to a serious level. Mm-mm. And there's no accountability there. Yep. There's no true repercussions. We get divorced, we move on, the next person accepts us. Well, it was the woman's fault or the man's fault. And the last five, six years, I started to really understand 
the trauma and damage that I've caused my kids. And I'm doing everything I can to change as a man to ensure that they understand what I did was wrong. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand the repercussions per se. I I didn't think it was affecting them. I thought it was just going to be me and my spouse and everything else. You know, not my children, but it's it's horrible, man. The way our world is and how we're actually just what we say we love and how we say we love versus you know our action is it's not it doesn't match up. Well, I mean, look at you know society today. If you look at for example, you turn on the TV, you look at any any uh, TV show, the father figure is a joke. The figure, I mean, literally the joke. Uh, what's his face, uh, Al Bundy um, from uh, Married with Children. He's a joke. He's he's laughed at. He is the the goofball, so to speak, or the goon. It's not like Leave It to Beaver, where there, you know, where the father was, you know, Ward Cleaver was the father figure. He was the uh, the main personality. Uh, best way to describe it, he was in charge. You know, he was one. He was the glue that held the, uh, the the family together. Yes, him and his wife, you know, together as a team, were the ones that raised the children and made it a good home. But they don't. They don't preach that anymore. The mindset of uh, work hard, party harder. You're already yep. you're already in a deficit right there in that mindset. Yes. And it's biblical. You know, God didn't put us on the earth to play. He put us in, in the garden to work, to work this land. And yep. we are playing games with everything we have in our life. And that's why I'm, um, it seems normal to us because we were born into it. But that's why our, our whole lives and our relationships and our jobs, our careers are just nothing but destruction. We can't grow in life. It's it's. Uh, it's interesting how people can't see that. Yeah. And it's funny you talk about the uh, the hazing and stuff like that in the teams. There was definitely two different types of hazing. If if hazing ever happened in the teams. <clears throat> Which it didn't. Of course not. But if it did, there were two types. There were the types that were, you know, the, the type of hazing where um, it was just typically done by the guys who got hazed, you know, when they were new guys. And they felt like, oh, I have to make sure that these guys get hazed just the way I did or even worse. Um, and then there were the guys who understood what hazing was all about, what it's supposed to be about. Hazing is supposed to be a, a, a rite of passage. Right. You know, it's supposed to be um, so that you actually feel like you belong, not so that you feel like a complete outcast to where you don't even want to be anywhere around the guys who were hazing in the first place. You know, there's a huge difference. And that's that's one something that you know guys didn't didn't understand. Yeah, man, you get caught up. I mean, I remember guys being you know face to butt, butt naked, taped together with hot sauce on their tanks. Yeah. You know, and it's not good. Now I, I used to laugh at that stuff, but I'm sitting here now like, how stupid could you possibly be? You're actually yeah. you're, you're pushing people away instead of bringing them into a brotherhood. Yeah, it's it's not good and. There's a lot of change that needs to go across the board. <laughs> yeah. There was uh, there was an incident that happened while I was working uh, land warfare at Trade Up. It went up the chain and everyone knew about it. So it's not like something that, you know, is just going to come out or anything like that. But myself and my uh, senior chief, I was a E6 at the time. We had heard that there was a uh, an individual was coming to training. They were saying that he was the problem child. There were all these issues. So like, well, you know, we've, we've seen this before. We've heard this before. Let's just take it with a grain of salt. You know, when he gets here... Uh, him and I had talked, my, this, my senior chief and I had talked, and we we're like, when he gets here, you and I will take him out and we'll see what's going on, just kind of visit with him, you know, just kind of re- get, him a re- get a read on him. And we did, and he was fine. There was nothing really big, there was no big deal about him. 
Um, there's nothing, you know, out of the ordinary and I just seemed like a good dude. And then watching him in training, it seemed like he was just a guy who was just, things were coming to him a little slower. Now, when I was in the teams, as far as when I was in the uh, in platoon, before you came to training, before you came to training as a, uh, as a platoon, as a squadron, whatever have you, the LPO and the chief were tasked with getting your platoon, your squad, your squadron up to speed before you, you were brought to training as a, as a group. And it had to do with the fact that they wanted you at a, at least a walk, not a crawl. Right. You know what I mean? And that's exactly what was not happening. The chief, now the way they had, at this point in time, they had the squadron chief, squadron senior chief, so to speak. And this guy was a, that was a complete turd. He was a guy who'd been looked over, passed over for dev group, who thought that he was, you know, a shoe in because his old roommate was monster at dev group and uh, everyone loved him. I mean, you know, his call sign was the governor mainly because he, that's how he was. He was just a good dude, solid operator. And this guy wasn't, this guy was hated. He was actually called the Grinch. That was his, that was his call sign. It was because he has had a shitty attitude. And he just had it out for anybody who had time at, at dev group. Again, he was hazed mainly because people didn't like him. Long story short, this kid had a, a safety violation on the range. It wasn't that big, big of a deal. Basically all it was is, you know, they were in formation um, and they got contacted. He dropped the wrong way. He dropped facing the instructors. When he, he realized his mistake midway into the, into the drop, had, had his weapon straight up in the air. So he didn't flag anybody but he fell in the wrong direction nonetheless. So we had to write it up as a safety violation so that basically you understand what you did wrong, you wouldn't do it again. There was a, a consequence right. to your actions. And everyone got safety violations. If you got through uh, land warfare or CQB without a safety violation, dude, you were a golden child, Yeah, which didn't happen. So we talked to him, we told him it wasn't that big of a deal, this, that, and the other. Well, I guess the squadron senior chief felt that it was a blemish and he talked to some of the members of his uh, his squadron told him that he wanted him hazed. Well, these guys did it the wrong way. They went out drinking, came back, and at about three in the morning, they came into this guy's room and they beat the hell out of him. So much so that the guy was so pissed off, he actually packed up his personal gear, stole a team van. We were at Fort Chaffee at the time. <laughs> yeah, stole a team van, drove to Fort Smith Airport, bought a ticket to his home of record, his father was a uh, retired master chief in the Navy, and uh, he knew that he could get a little help on that end. And uh, about five in the morning, myself and my senior chief, the training senior chief, we would always go and work out at the, the local gym. And uh, we never saw the majority of the guys from the, from, the, uh, the, from the squadrons there. And we start seeing guys come in. They weren't dressed to work out. They were just kind of looking around, that kind of thing. So I went up to him like, what's going on? Oh, nothing. I'm like, don't, don't pull that. I said, one, you're not obviously not here to work out, so what's the issue? Well, we got a guy who's UA. What? All right, I'll stop. So myself and my senior chief, we you know went back. We got all the guys together, including the instructors. Um, our warrant officer for the uh, for the uh, for the uh, the training um, cadre, he called everybody into the classroom. We said, all right, nobody calls home. Nobody calls back to the command until we find out what exactly is going on so that we don't, you know, raise any alarm bells that we don't have to, uh, we don't have to raise at, you know, if, if, if nothing's really wrong, this guy's like went home with a, 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 you know, a woman or something like that. We did some digging. I found out, found out from one of the squadron guys, what had actually happened. And we pulled 
Uh, they got, we put an APB on the van. They found it at the airport. So everything was kind of coming together as far as what had actually um, happened. Our warrant officer pulled us back in the classroom and he lit into him. Now, what the warrant officer typically did was he would do his debrief and then he would, you know, on the normal, he would look at the other instructors and say, you got anything? You got anything? You know, go around and say, you know, what do you, what's your input? That kind of thing. This wasn't any different. He did the same thing. Well, that was where I screwed up because I'd heard what had happened and I'd heard the extent of it to where you had four or five guys against one. And that's not something that I'm about. I don't like bullies. I don't like the gang tactics, that type of crap, because it's it doesn't belong in the teams, not the teams that I grew up in. Not only that, but the person who made the order wasn't involved in that. He actually had other guys do his bidding for him. Um, that way he had plausible deniability and all that kind of bullshit. When the warrant looked at me, he's like, hey, you got anything? I'm like, yeah, I got something. I said, you know what? I said, I learned in, when I was going through training that if you screw up, I'm going to, I'm going to yell at you right then and there to make sure you know that you screwed up so that when you even think about doing the same thing again, later on, you'll remember my stupid face and you'll say, well, you know, okay, I screwed up back then. I'm not going to do it now. I said, if anyone has a problem with me, because you know, the way I've, you know, mistreated you or whatever like that, let's take it outside and one-on-one let's go after it. I said, let's get it on. You know, if you kick my ass, cool. If you don't cool, but let's take care of it. I said, but this gang mentality bullshit is just that. It's bullshit. It doesn't belong in the teams. I said, I'm sorry, but it's a direct reflection of your, your leadership. And I pointed at him. This guy was an E8. I was an E6. It was the wrong move. And I got my pee-pee slapped for it. Rightly so. It, him and I had another incident later on in another p- portion of training. Unfortunately, later on, I had, and later on in my career, I ended up having to work for this individual. <laughs> that didn't turn out well. And granted, I opened the door. I screwed up big time. Not only did he slam the door, but he slammed the door on my fingers. Um, he took advantage of the situation and he full on just nailed me to the wall. Like I said, I screwed up, but I didn't deserve to be, you know, hammered the way I was. You know, I mean, it's one thing in subordinates, but you got to stand up for stuff. Absolutely. And if you truly feel that was wrong, which again, I look back at those things and they, I truly believe that they were wrong. Yep. It was at the time it was right in my mind, but now hundred percent, I would never do something like that to anybody. hundred percent. You got to stand up for it and understand just because you make a right decision in life, there's a possible repercussion that's going to come from it. Sure. You still got to do that right decision. You got to stand behind what you believe in. Yeah. Um, for those of you who are listening, I met Daniel through a mutual friend. Um, when I started this podcast, I was going to sell a couple rifles and he said he knew someone and he actually was a team guy and former dev group operator. And after talking to Daniel and listening to his story and listening to how positive he was just as a man in general and with all the trials and tribulations he was going through, I felt that I wanted to meet him if he was up for it. So here we are. And I'm more than humbled just to sit in your presence and just uh, look at you and understand that. all the, the trials that you're dealing with. And I think um, it's amazing how many guys, you know, they go through what we do. They go to combat, they come back and there's a lot of deaths. There's a lot of accidents that occur here stateside. Would you mind telling the story about your accident? Yeah. So basically uh, around 2011 timeframe, I was the program manager for a contracting company. It was basically a State Department company that company that uh, did State Department contracts and taught guys how to operate overseas, protecting our embassies, both in static security and mobile security. 
And uh, I was at the time sitting in my office, writing up a spreadsheet for the next class that was coming in. And I just had this first off a, a smell or taste of something metallic in my, mo- in my mouth and in my nose. And then all of a sudden it felt like the walls were closing in on me. And I had this like nauseating kind of sickening feeling uh, that went throughout my body. And I had to catch it, actually go back to revert back to my buds training. And it's the same sounds strange to say it, but we go through a dive phase, you know, pool comp. And there's a portion where you are fully jocked up in your scuba gear. You're crawling across the bottom of the pool and you have your mask on, you have your uh, hose in your mouth and the instructor comes down and just basically kills your mood, so to speak, rips your mask off, pulls the, uh, the regulator out of your mouth, ties it in knots, and you have to go through a set of steps to right yourself and not fight the urge to, you know, bolt to the surface. And whenever that happened, I always told myself, okay, relax. I have at least a good minute and a half to two minutes of good air before I have to panic, before I start to panic. And that's kind of what I went through. Um, I was like, okay, you know, I'm in a safe space. I'm in a safe room. There's nobody shooting at me. You know, know, I'm not underwater. I'm okay. I I know that I can breathe through this. And that's what I did. I had to breathe myself through it and kind of calm myself down. And it lasted, I would say, for about a minute and a half, two minutes. But it was a long two minutes, so to speak. And uh, that was the first time it happened. And it started happening regularly. I would say, I say regularly, I'd say probably at least once a month, if not once every couple months. Didn't know really what was going on, but I figured it was, I, I caught the, thought they were anxiety attacks. And then a close friend of mine in the teams, a guy named uh, Dave Collins, uh, he actually committed suicide. And this was around 2015 timeframe. The difference with this memorial that I went to for him was that I walked into the memorial, the reception, so to speak, of the memorial and saw a lot of my mentors that were visibly shaken by what they were hearing from uh, Jennifer, David's widow. And it had to do with the fact that she was telling them all of the symptoms that he was showing prior to his taking his life. And it was all symptoms that we were experiencing, you know, lack of sleep, memory loss, you know, sight going away a lot earlier than you typically would testosterone dropping through the, through the floor, so to speak. I mean, my testosterone at the time finding out was so low that I was this close to growing a vagina pretty much. Um, <laughs> no offense. Yeah. Yeah. As a man, it's, it's not, it's not a good thing. Yeah, right. that way. <laughs> I, at one point in time, well, at this point in time, when this happened, I was actually doing training, teaching SWAT guys out in Louisville. Um, another team guy and myself were basically teaching all of uh, Kentucky SWAT all over the state um, in one area in Louisville. And I was traveling out there, going from Virginia Beach, and it was about a seven and a half hour drive. And I was at one point in time about, I would say about an hour away, and I started having this feeling, this this whole uh, anxiety attack thing come over me. This time, I had sort of a, a uh, tunnel vision. My, my vision went hay- haywire, best way to say it. And I was kind of like looking out of one eye driving, and then I finally got, I was able to pull myself, pull, pull over to the side of the road. And uh, it subsided and I was like, okay, this is, I can't do this anymore. So I knew that there, I'd heard about the whole TBI issue and I called one of the guys who I did a platoon with, um, a guy named Chris Friesenbrock and he was a corpsman and he, I knew he had been doing some stuff with the, uh, the TBI, uh, TBI studies. 
So I called him at 11 o'clock at night. And as soon as I, he got the phone, he's like, hey, man, how you doing? I'm like, I'm good. Hey, man, I got a question for you. I said, what do you know about the whole TBI thing? He goes, all right, hold up. He goes, first off, I've been talking to you about a year and a half. He goes, uh, it's 11 o'clock at night. And the first thing you ask me about TBI, he'll tell you what. He goes, I'm going to start asking you some questions. You just answer yes or no. Well, I guess I answered yes too many times. And he <laughs> said, all right, what's going to happen is this. I'm going to have two guys give you a call. Dave Hall called me. He, um, he said, all right, what's going on? And I went through it with him. We, um, I got the phone call from another guy. And basically what it was is that they were vetting me for guys going to what was then the Carrick Brain Center. Carrick Brain Center was working out of Irving, Texas. And they were doing studies on guys that were showing signs of traumatic brain injury. Well, the thing about it is that it's, it was labeled as TBI, but it's really not TBI. TBI is a single event. Um, it's a single traumatic event where um, you have what they call the coup or the contra coup, so to speak, the brain bouncing back and forth in your head if you get hit, say if you get a concussion, that type of thing. Um, they've also utilized the label CTE, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, which it's, it's different. It's basically CTE is, is more along the lines of an NFL football player or a boxer where a boxer gets punchy or an NFL player like the whole uh, Aaron Hernandez deal where outside of nowhere, he, uh, um, he goes in and kills his, uh, his, his, his wife, girlfriend or whatever it was. I was like, okay, what do I need to do? He goes, well, clear your schedule. Cause in about a week and a half, you're going to be leaving for, uh, for Texas. So I come down here and I still, I've always been the person who didn't want to take away from someone who really needed, you know, what, what, what was going on, what was, you know, what the issues were. I told the people there at, at the Carrick brain center, I said, look, if I don't need to be here, I need to know now because I don't want to take the $20,000 that the St. Navy seal foundation was funding for these guys to go there away from someone who really needs it. Like, all right, just relax. He goes, first off, he goes, you're obviously having an issue. He goes, you wouldn't be here, you know, if you didn't. He goes, the other thing is this. He goes, how long were you in the teams? I said, I was in 16 years. He goes, and after the teams, have you done any work with regards to around small explosions with weapons, that type of stuff? I'm like, yeah, every day pretty much. He goes, okay, well, first off, you're a prime candidate. So just relax. The other thing they said to me was like, think about it like this. He goes, 16 years, you are running and gunning. And you are, you know, running around with your hair on fire, doing things that people pay to do. He goes, it's pretty much the equivalent of driving your car about, I say, 90 miles an hour down the highway. Everyone else is doing 55 and you're weaving in and out of traffic, which is pretty heavy, trying to mitigate accidents. He goes, and all of a sudden, after 16 years of doing this, of driving this fast, he goes, you're forced to take an exit and you can't go any faster than 25 miles an hour. Because if you don't think that's going to have a profound effect on your mental state, he goes, you are sorely mistaken. So I'm like, okay. And I put it that way. I couldn't really argue that. And um, they diagnosed me with a two week, within the two week period I was there, they diagnosed me with uh, breacher brain or mild TBI. The problem is that, and this is where the teams are still working on it. The military is still working on it. They truly don't know what it is. They don't really have a true label for it. The problem is that CTE, TBI, the labels that are using right now, like I said, it's for a single event and it's for um, concussions where what they call the contra coup, which is basically your brain is sitting in a fiscal liquid, which is, you know, your, your, um, in your, inside your skull. 
it's not attached to anything. It's attached to the brainstem, but it's not, it's not a suspension system. It's not like say a woodpecker where you have a woodpecker who's, you know, pounding his head into a, uh, into a, a tree and he's doing it over and over again, a thousand times, you know, a minute. But the problem with the difference is that with a woodpecker, his tongue actually is wrapped around his brain and acts as a suspension system. We don't have that. So when we, our brain gets jarred, your brain bounces back and forth inside your skull, which causes that contra coup event. Where we differ in the SEAL teams and in anyone who deals with explosions, deals with weapons all the time, you have what they call a coup contra coup, which is where your brain bounces around so many times you don't even know they can't even count it. Not to mention, you're dealing with explosive overpressure waves, where that overpressure wave is different than an NFL football player or a boxer, where they have the one event which bounces back and forth with an explosive wave. It travels through your body, affecting not only your brain, but it affects your organs, it affects your pituitary gland, your thyroid, and screws things up immensely. So like I said, I was I was diagnosed with that, and then I had my first grand mal seizure one year later. I was asleep, woke up to uh, three paramedics trying to pick me up off the floor. They took me to the hospital, told me there was a, a grand mal seizure, blah, 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 blah. Um, didn't have another one until April or May of 2018. Again, while I was asleep, I wasn't prescribed any medication, uh, mainly because you know, one, the doctor told me that there was really no need initially because it was a one-time event. Um, there were extenuating circumstances with regard to stress, insulin levels, that type of stuff. That, and he said, well, look, you know, honestly, he goes, if you, if we put you on medication, which really isn't needed right now and not recommended, you have to surrender your driver's license for six months. Well, at the time I was the breadwinner for the family. And the only way that I was able to make money was to travel and get things done and then come back. And this was not something that was happening all the time. It was like almost like a one-time event. So didn't really think too much of it. Well, in September of 2018, about six months after the, uh, the second one, I was driving in my vehicle. I had my fiance's two kids in the car, one in the back seat, one in the passenger seat. Um, and I went into seizure while driving and my car crossed over the, the, uh, um, the median. It went into an adjacent and paralleling parking lot and clipped a couple cars and then ended up, uh, after about 60 miles an hour going down an embankment, jumping another embankment. Luckily I was driving a Ford Raptor. The suspension took it like a champ, <laughs> but what didn't, what didn't take for it very well was me slap slamming into a tree at about 60 miles an hour. Thank God. Andrew in the back seat was fine. He actually just crawled right out the window and started telling everybody uh, my fiance's phone number and telling him that there were three occupants in the car and this, that, and the other, you know, solid. Ava was in the front seat. And when the truck had jumped, she actually kind of slipped through her harness. And when we slammed into the tree, she was pinned in between the seat and the, uh, the dashboard of the car. They said that it was honestly, it was paramedics and the firefighters said it was almost like the hand of God came down and put his hand between her head and the, uh, the dashboard because there was roughly about two inches of space, you know, where her head would have been crushed if there was any more. I, on the other hand, did not fare too well. Ava only got cut above her eye and like six stitches. Myself, I was pinned. My right leg pretty much exploded right at the knee. Uh, my, uh, my left leg, it exploded um, at the, uh, in the mid uh, tib fib. 
area. Broke my back, uh, broke my uh, scapula in, in nine places, shattered my my hip. Um, you name it, you put a finger on me, it was it was broken. Um, I had flail chest. Um, I was bleeding internally. It took them about 40 minutes to get me out of the vehicle, uh, mainly because the engine was sitting on my lap. The engine was on fire. car was on fire. Um, we had just filled the tank, which was a 35-gallon tank. We just filled it that morning, and it was constantly catching on fire. And Krista came up alongside, and she was brought up there by the, the chief of, of the fire chief of Denton County. I do believe in, in, the, in divinity. I do believe in the divine because there is no other, there's no other excuse for it. There's no other uh, way to explain it. When I, f- backing up about six months, when I first showed up here to Texas, a solicitation had been put out by uh, Denton County Fire for training with boats, with floodwater rescue. Uh, there, was been a, there was a bunch of flooding in Texas in 2015, and they didn't know how to handle it. And they had been donated a bunch of uh, craft, uh, a bunch of uh, Zodiacs, Zodiac boats, uh, you name it. And they didn't know how to use it. And they were looking for training. I volunteered. I said, yeah, I'll do it. You know, I'm not going to charge for it like that. And I met the majority of the uh, police, the fire chiefs in the area to include the battalion chief and the majority of the firefighters. Worked with them. And they were, you know, solid dudes. And... Put it this way, it's a very, very good thing when you're in an accident like that to have a vested interest with regards to the firefighters, i.e. knowing you when they show up at the scene. You know, it wasn't like, oh, this is bad. It was like, oh, this is Dan. It's Dan. Look, I can see his truck. That's, that's That's Dan. And they did what they could, got me out, got me to the hospital. Actually, life lighted, a life light had landed on the middle of the road and waited for about 30 minutes. Um, got me into the uh, helicopter. Um, I actually died twice uh, while while in while in flight. Uh, actually, I, sorry, I take that back. I coded once on the flight, coded another time in the in the uh, when they got to the ER. They flew me to uh, Parkland Hospital in downtown Dallas, and I was in surgery for about a day and a half. Um, I had about a one percent chance of living when that when they brought me to the hospital. Typically, hospitals will stop at about 60 units of blood um, as far as uh, uh, blood infusions, transfusions, that type of thing. And mainly has to do with the fact that there's shortages quite a few times. So that being said, go out and donate blood. Hospitals need it. Because the battalion battalion chief talked to the uh, the doctor, he said, look, this guy's a Navy SEAL. He's got a, a lot of good friends. He's a good guy. I know him personally. Um, he's helped us out quite a bit. You know, Please take care of him. The doc that took care of me told me later on. He said, "Look, he goes, I've I've dealt with a uh, I've I've had a uh, a green beret, you know, on my table, saved his life." He goes, "I was not going to lose my first Navy SEAL." Wasn't going to happen. <laughs> so he uh, he actually did. It was ninety four units of blood they went through. I bled out seven times in the ER. When I finally woke up, where I remember being conscious, it was I think three days later, three or four days later, and my. Fiance was standing over me. My girlfriend, she was my girlfriend at the time. And my cousin, who I hadn't seen in about five or six years. And then my best friend, Monkey. Um, I hadn't seen him in, in like three years. They were standing over me. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, if these guys are here, it's bad. I mean, I'm sitting, I knew that I was in a hospital because obviously I was intubated, had a tube coming out of my 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 uh, my mouth, and I was I couldn't talk. And, you know, I was being blinded by the lights in the ceiling 
And uh, I was kind of tied down because both my hands were were pretty messed up and they were trying to keep them from um, keep me from moving them. And uh, that's when I was told what had happened and the extent of my injuries. And, you know, it shocked me. But again, backing up to when I first came out here, my wife, my son, and myself moved out here in August 2017. Within about three or four months of coming out here, my wife and I started having issues. She ended up cheating on me with my partner, my business partner, and my so-called friend. I was served with divorce papers in March of 2018. When I was served, I was pretty much ready to kill my business partner, my so-called friend. In fact, I had five friends who pretty much were taking turns uh, keeping watch on me because I was I was full on going to kill him. Um, he full on lied to me to my face when I had questions about him and my, my wife, saying that I had issues with how much time they were spending together and how close he was getting. No, brother, I would never do that, brother. No, brother. It's very important that relationships stay, you know, non opposite sex. You yes. cannot sustain a male and female friendship without something happening in time. And the reality is in a engagement or a marriage, your partner should be your best friend. Absolutely. They should get that time. 100%. So that, that's my firm belief. It's really helped uh, my relationship with my wife. It was a standard that we set in the beginning. Even though we don't understand it all, that's something that we truly believe. Yep. And we stick to it and it has uh, changed our life and our relationship to the fullest. Uh, that's actually pretty awesome. In my situation, it wasn't quite that way. Now, granted, I will say this, that I won't, I won't give her any, I won't give her any props, so to speak. I won't give her any excuses, but I will say that the majority of my time for pretty much throughout our entire relationship, I was on the road, you know, a good amount of time and we had been growing apart for a while. And I truly think that she was, you know, looking for an out or he gave it to her and, you know, she took it wholeheartedly. When I was having the issues where I wanted to kill this dude, a friend of mine said, Hey, I want to introduce you to somebody that I want you to talk to. And I was introduced to a guy, two guys, actually one Jacob Schick from 22 kill, um, solid, solid dude, ex-Marine. You can actually see him. He was been in the he was in the movie. Uh, um, uh, I can't remember the name of the movie with uh, Lady Gaga and uh, Bradley Cooper, the singing movie, whatever it was. He was in that movie. He was also in uh, um, he was also in American Sniper. Solid dude. Lost his leg. Ex, ex Marine, like I said. Talked to him for a bit. But the other guy was a guy named David Babora, who he used to play for the Seattle Seahawks. Got hurt. Came back to Texas, and he opened up a place called the Adaptive Training Foundation, or ATF. It's a place where they have veterans, civilians, people who have, I dare say, disabilities. They're more so modified abilities. People who've lost legs, lost limbs, whatever have you, issues. They have people with Parkinson's, you know, all kinds of stuff, MS. And they will cater to each individual person and try to get them to live the, I dare say it, but their best life, so to speak, and get them working out, get them drive and get them some sort of uh, purpose. And, uh, I talked to him for about, I would say two or three hours and said, tell you what, I want to, I want to take you out onto the, uh, the floor and, you know, meet some of the, some of the guys we work with. And the first guy I met was this guy named Brian Aft. This dude was a Marine, ex-Marine. He was, well, I dare say that. Tell that to a Marine. They'll tell you that there's no such thing as an ex-Marine. Once a Marine, always a Marine. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Once a crane eater, always a crane eater. Um, this dude had been in a, uh, IED explosion. The thing I want to say is uh, the, the vehicle he was riding in blew up. He lost everything below the waist, except for like a small portion on his left side. 
And I'm working with this guy. And I, I say work. I was just basically, I was motivating him. I was basically wor- working on the side. I wasn't teaching these guys. It wasn't anything like that. It was just me, you know, kind of like just, hey, man, come on, keep going. You got this. And honestly, these guys, these people were motivating me more than I was motivating them. But Brian, at one point, he was doing push-ups where the only thing that was touching the ground was his hands. And, you know, the, you know, all the other instru- all the other teachers, the PT, the physical trainers, all that stuff, they're all being, okay, that's great. You're doing such a great job. I'm like, come on, come on. <laughs> and, you know, Brian's on like 20 out of 24. And uh, 24 <laughs> after, after, after you know, doing all these. And I'm like, come on, push it out. And everyone's kind of looking at me. And, and David Vaboro looks at me. He's like, you're going to fit in just perfect here. <laughs> so fast forward to after the accident, I wake up. When they told me that I lost my legs, I didn't fall on panic. Trust me, there was a, definitely a level of panic. But I kind of reverted very fast in my mind to everything that those guys could do and me working with them for the number of months prior. I was like, okay, you know, if they can do it, so can I, you know, not only that, but I have a, uh, I have a, you know, at the time he was eight years old. Yeah. He was, my son was eight years old at the time. And I'm like, you know, I I got an eight year old who's watching me. You know, I got to be the best example for him because he's got to, he's got to know a hundred percent, hell a thousand percent that no matter what. No matter how hard life hits you, you have to be able to stand up. doesn't matter how many times, but you have to get up every time, look life in the face and say, you hit like a bitch and keep moving forward. I think the key key concept in that for a lot of people, you know, they sit back and they wish they did stuff like we did is understand that we failed so many times. It's unreal. Oh, yeah. It's understanding that failure is where your growth comes from, you know, and being around the people who are going to not laugh at you when you fail. Yep. You're not going to be embarrassed and you're able to, uh, they're going to motivate you even more to get back and accomplish your goals. Dude, I'll tell you what, you know, thinking back on my life and <sighs> everything that I've done, you know, everything that I've screwed up, I've made so many mistakes, you know, in my, in my life, in my career. And yes, you definitely learn from each one. And I've learned a hell of a lot, put it that way. <laughs> And I, I do. I, I would. I would love to say I don't have regrets, but I do. I have a lot of regrets. But the one regret regret I don't have is my son. He is pretty much everything that was in me that was good. It's him. It's all on him. I definitely I'm biased without a doubt. But he is the most amazing person, being whatever you want to call it, unreal. I mean, he's just a such such a good. He's such a good boy. Huge heart. Never wants to hurt anybody, and he's just a good, good boy. It's hard so. to believe you can produce something so good, huh? It's, it really is, <laughs> especially really with is. everything that we've done. A lot of people Dude. think, and I hate to say it, they think that we go over there and we're this perfect image of what it means to be a warrior. Um, I messed up a lot over there. I did a lot of things beyond what was needed. Sure. Um, so there's a lot of wrongdoing there, even if, even though it was the enemy, you know, we still crossed the line many times. My regrets come from just being stupid, you know, just doing things that, you know, I should never have done in the first place. But secondly, for example, I got my life, had my life stream come to fruition and I went to SEAL Team 6 dev group. And when I, when I started going through training I had just met my soon-to-be ex-wife. Here's the thing. When it comes to dev group, it's got to be about the team first. It really does. You know, you are put into positions where there's no one else that you can count on but the guys left and right of you. 
I had a respect for that idea, but I didn't fully respect it. And I think I thought that, you know, the love that I had for my ex was more important than what I was doing with, with dev group. And it wasn't, I mean, it really wasn't. I say that mainly because everything that I was going through with regards to dev group and training and being on the actual squadron that I was assigned to, there were things that I did, actions that I took that I shouldn't have, that I was doing so to kind of preserve my relationship with my ex. I shouldn't have. I did not respect the team the way I respected it. I should have respected it. I didn't fully appreciate it. And honestly, I don't think I was mature enough with that regard to be where I was at. And that's a great topic. Just understanding there's a fine balance between a warrior and having that emotional aspect and that balance. And where I struggled was I went just the opposite. I went hardcore to be a SEAL. I took my work home with me. I studied 24 hours a day and completely neglected the home life. And that was the beginning of the destruction of my first marriage. I look back and I related to King David. I was actually in Alabama about seven months ago working with a group through the I Am 4 project, helping Christian men get back on track. Okay. And the pastor's son of Epic Church, he got up there and he goes, do you understand why King David was a man after God's own heart and why he was so successful? He said he knew how to balance being a warrior and the emotions. And he's like, the biggest issue we have right now, they're teaching us to be this hardcore warrior and we neglect everything else. Or we don't have the warrior mindset and we're this quote unquote subservient, weak-minded man that wants to be the warrior. So how do we find that balance? And it took me finding God to really understand what it means to be a well-rounded just man in general. And we all feel yeah. what makes us go this way or that way in life. That's a whole nother ball game that no one's ever figured out. That's 100% fair. I mean, you know, my it's funny because my uh, my favorite symbol to this day has always been the yin yang and it has to do with, with living in balance. And in all honesty, I have, that's one thing I was never able to find in the teams. I can wholeheartedly say that I let a lot of people down. You know, I let a lot of my teammates down. I let a lot of people down that, that put their, their stuck their neck out for me and, you know, recommending me to go to dev group. I've tried to make amends with a lot of the guys and I've talked to quite a few of my old teammates from uh, dev group. And I've, you know, wholeheartedly apologized and still continue to apologize. Whether they think it or not, whether they hold it against me or not, I will still, will always carry that weight of regret. And I, I eventually, I think I'll let it, I'll try and let it go. But at the same time, you know, you have to answer for your, you have to answer for your actions. You have to be accountable for your actions. So that's a good topic though. How long do you have to be punished or punish yourself before you forgive yourself? How do you know the teammates? And this is a great topic going into Christianity. Sure. And when you talked to me yesterday, um, it took me years to forgive myself. I found myself returning to people asking for forgiveness that I actually sat down with years later and apologized. And I said, I forgive you. I, I understand. And it destroyed me so much. I was being destructive in my own life, hurting my relationships, hurting my children because I couldn't forgive myself. Because when you know you're truly, your heart is 
seeking that forgiveness and you understand what you did wrong, all you can do is say, hey, man, I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? And it's up to them to forgive you. That forgiveness goes both ways. It's also for them to let go of that anger, but also for you to let go or us to let go of that self-guilt. You're human. We screw up, like you said. You're not that man anymore. And that's one thing about, you know, coming to Christ is uh, you're reborn again and you will not live that life again. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, we talked about it yesterday. You know, you had talked to me about doing this podcast and, and talking about, you know, my beliefs, you know, with regards to uh, religion and this, that, and the other. I want to make sure that there was no misunderstanding or misconception on, you know, what my beliefs were and this, that, and the other. Um, because, you know, I, I can't really say that I've found Jesus yet. I grew up Roman Catholic. I went to Catholic school first and second grade. My mother actually worked at the rectory. We were friends with uh, the three main priests that were there at that church. But the one thing that I could never get past was the the whole idea of you must go to church, otherwise you're going to go to hell. And for me, it was, I don't know, I guess for me, it was somewhat pessimistic, but it was, you know, I'd see that the the tray that would be passed around and people would be throwing money in and it was almost like, okay, you know, they want people to come to church so that they can continue to have a cash flow. And that's why they keep pushing this and they keep preaching, you know, come to church or you're going to go to hell. Basically, it's, it's for me, it was like, it was bullshit because, you know, it almost seemed like keep coming to church because we need your money. And you're, you know, this is a great example of why we as humans need Christ. And one of the biggest things that turn people away from Christ is looking at humans and creating this image of who Christ is. Sure. This is the reason why Christ had to come because of our ways. And it's it's great that, you know, God has given you that discernment to recognize that and move away from not only the Catholic church, we won't even get into that. You know, that's super deep. But there's a lot of churches out there who have the same mindset. Hithing, realistically, is part of the Bible. Um, God requires 10% of our earnings because He is the one who allows us to be in the positions that we are. We just don't honor that and respect that. So that is definitely a biblical aspect, but it's definitely misused in a lot of ways. And Get into the psychology of it. I don't know if you've ever studied the colors. You look at blue, you look at red. Blue is a color of trust, purple like passion. And this is why when they had these concerts and this music blaring, it actually in the colors, it releases endorphins in the body. And then they start passing the tithing cups around to get the money from you. Mm. They did some studies where... On week one, you know, at the end of week one, a pastor would say, listen, all week next week, we're going to talk about God's blessings, how he's going to bring these just miracles to your life and he's going to bless you abundantly. And they were packed. Tithing went through the roof. But at the end of that first week, all right, guys, the second week, we're going to talk about hell and we're going to talk about all the repercussions for living in sin and disobedience to God's word. And it all just disappeared. (laughs) And I see that on my Instagram when I preach a little bit. As soon as we talk about sin, boy, the views go, they just drop off instantly. Unless we're all sinners, that's why. Yeah. But you got to, man, at some point you got to wake up. And if you believe that there's a God, you got to, and was it James 1, 9 or 2, 9 says, you believe in a God? Great. Even the demons believe. You know, who? what God are you going to believe in? Are you going to believe in the one that... A saint Christ, are you going to believe in Satan who rules the world? Who are you going to believe in? You know, we got to stop being lukewarm and choose a side, which brings me to my next question. Sure. 
you know, when we talked, you were saying that you overseas, um, some family members had prayed for you and you felt protection. Yeah. And 100% I can relate to that, not yeah. overseas, because I wasn't saved or had nobody praying for me at that point. Um, you go to church, you said you feel all of these great feelings, and you can see that it's a good thing, but you haven't found Christ yet. What do you think is the biggest thing that is holding you back to surrendering to Christ and saying, I accept you as my Lord and Savior? I don't know. I don't know. Well, getting back to like growing up, I've always believed in God. I've always had a strong belief in God. I've always you know, definitely believed that Jesus is the Son of God, and He was sent basically as a sacrifice, or you know, for our best way to put it. Because I'm not, a, I'm not a, a theology uh, expert by any means. He's a covering for our sin. Yes, He's a blood sacrifice for it. But like I said, I was kind of pushed away from the whole idea of religion. I want to say I was more spiritual than religious, and mainly religious mainly because, like I said, of my views towards the Catholic uh, religion. However. Like I said, I've always had a firm belief in God. And yes, there are still family members, but mainly friends. A couple of guys that I am still friends with, Brian and Todd Mazeka. Their mother, Karen, has was always like my second mother. But her mother, Shirley Papa, she was devout Catholic. Beautiful, beautiful woman inside and out. And... She was, you know, she, you know, she has, she has a part of a, uh, you know, church groups. She has her, her prayer groups, that kind of stuff. And always respected that always, you know, kind of, you know, always kind of looked up to that as far as, you know, with a, with a deep, uh, held her in high regard, put it that way. When I got to dev group, I went through green team, the selection course for uh dev group in 2001. In fact, when nine 11 happened, uh, we were about a month away from graduating. So the squadron that I went to, we were actually in Afghanistan in January of 2002. And uh, it was right in the thick of it. We did a lot of stuff while we were there. And in fact, one of the times when, uh, doing getting back to it, because I'm kind of rambling. While I was there, I never felt like I wasn't protected. I never felt, I mean, we all felt a level of, you know, scared and this, that, and the other, but it was, it was mental. If you're not scared, then you're a danger to not only yourself, but people around you. There has to be a level of concern, but not a level of, of scared to where I, I couldn't act. I couldn't you know, operate. Um, I remember early on when I was there, we were able to uh, call back to home and just let everyone know that we're you know okay. And uh, we were utilizing sat phones back then. It wasn't like anything a hard line like later on uh, turned out. And I called my mother. I said, look, before she answered the phone, I'm like, look, before you say anything, don't say my name. Don't, you know, ask, you know, don't mention where I'm, who I'm with. Don't mention, you know, where I'm at. I'm just calling to let you know that I'm okay. This, that, and the other. You said, okay, you know, just want to make sure that you're all right. Blah, blah, blah. blah. I said, do me, do me a favor. I said, uh, I know you talked to Shirley Papa and, you know, those and them. I said, do me a favor. Just make sure that, uh, Shirley Papa is, is putting in some prayers for me. It's Cause we're, we're definitely working. Put it that way. And I didn't mean to say it to her to, you know, kind of, I didn't mean to sound cool or anything like that. I just basically wanted to let her know that, Hey, do me a favor. Just let Shirley know, you know, that I'm, I'm going to need some prayers just to keep myself safe. Cause my biggest thing is, you know, one, keep the guys around me safe, but at the same time, you know, being able to make it home at the end of the day, she told me, Hey, it's already me. It's already happening. Shirley's already told me that she's, you know, she and her prayer group are, you know, you're a constant, personality of interest, so to speak, that you're always in their prayers. 
And uh, like I said, there was never anything we did that I didn't feel like I was protected. And like I said, I've always had a strong belief in God, but you know, you have people who are born again and this, that, and the other. I haven't, I haven't been there yet. I haven't found it yet. Now, I wasn't going to church back then. I uh, wasn't practicing back then. Um, since moving out here and since me- meeting my now fiance, she's taken me to her church and it's, it's much more laid back. I'm not having to get dressed up in my Sunday best, you know, dressing up, you know, nicer, but you know, don't have to wear a suit to, to church or anything like that. Now I haven't reached the point where, you know, as everyone's seeing, I'm raising my hands and stuff like that. It's, you know, not me yet. I get it. I understand it. I, I struggle with that as well. Yeah. And I did a podcast with a friend of mine who I went through buds with, uh, Rich Graham, a full spectrum warrior. And we I know did Rich. a podcast. I know Rich really well. And we talked about his testimony mm-hmm. of this demon just holding his hands down in church. He said, I, I can't explain the weight that was there. I don't want to spoil it. You have to go listen to that uh, podcast. But I'm the same way. I have just came out to the, I've gotten to the point where I will raise my hands and um, take my hands off the back of the chair from being sure. tense. I'll move around and sing, but then I would start with raising my hand here, and I would get it up like I'm swearing into the military. And I'm finally, <laughs> you know, I'm getting to the point where I praise him, you know, way better than I used to. But it's still a struggle. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think for me is you know when, when I'm in church, I'm my hands are in a in a in a place of respect, and I'm not trying to. I don't feel like I'm trying to bring, you know. Uh, um, attention to myself or anything like that. Do I feel that that's what people are doing? No, I don't. Always. The concept is he's our father and what we're doing is we're reaching up to him. And this is why Satan drags us down and keeps men like us or just men in general from raising our hands is because we're reaching out and we're opening our hearts to him. And we don't like to do that. We don't like to be vulnerable. And that is one of the most vulnerable positions because you're putting your trust in someone that you're I'm not quite there yet with, and it's, it's understandable. It's I hard. That. That's where I'm at. You know, it's I've never looked at time. it like that. Yeah, but when you're raising your hand, we're basically like a child reaching up to the our our father and say, "Pick me up, sure. carry me, help me, protect me." And uh, because of everything we went through uh, in the military and everything that we, a lot of people go through as a child, um, we're very defensive and sure. untrusting, like we talked about earlier. And that's sure. all it is. Is I'm putting blind faith into something that a lot of people haven't experienced yet is hard. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I I don't want people to think that, um, you know, I have a level of disrespect or any kind of disregard for people who are born again and that like that. I don't, I have some of my closest friends who, you know, are very heavily into the church and are born again, this, that, and the other. I have a deep respect for their beliefs, without a doubt. It's just me personally, I'm not there yet. So if you guys are listening to this, I ask that you pause this podcast, and I'm going to be praying for Daniel too, that God calls to his heart and calls him to his son, Jesus Christ. And scripture also says in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And it comes down to us being vulnerable like little children. Scripture says you can't go to the kingdom of heaven unless you come to me as like one of these children. And unfortunately, we don't want to be that vulnerable child. Yeah. You know, and it's hard. Yeah. It, it takes time. That's, it's uh that's understandable. I can I can I can respect that. I have no doubt you'll find him soon. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I'm I'm I've been through a heck of a lot. I have a lot to go go through. 
you know, you, you, it's funny you, you mentioned running to God. I'm not running to anybody anytime soon, <laughs> you know, unfortunately <laughs> with, with my, my predicament, but <laughs> you know, I, I understand what you're saying in spirit. And I, I, you know, I respect that. And that's just honestly, just my, uh, uh, sarcasm is my defense mechanism. Put it that way. How do you overcome your troubles? I mean, obviously, you know, like I was telling you um, when I broke my arm, yeah. I spent a year in a sling hooked up to a machine to make the bone graft grow, and it destroyed everything I had. That's sure. where God wanted me. How do you overcome the struggles that you deal with on a daily basis? Because there's no way in the world, like you said, that you can be in the situation that you're in and not have struggles. Sure. Well, no, you, you do. I mean... There are, there are plenty of times, you know, plenty of days I wake up and, um, you know, I'm miserable and I'm miserable to people around me and miserable to the people that I love. I try not to be, and I struggle not to be. And it has to do with this, but you know, I'm in pain every minute of every hour of the day. Like right now sitting here, um, on a scale of one to 10, I am constantly at a six constantly. Sometimes it goes, it goes higher. Sometimes it spikes. Um, now is that all over or is that just in your legs? Or? It typically has to do with a couple of things. One, the phantom limb pain, um, which is absolutely real. Never understood it when people would talk about it, you know, prior to losing my legs. Um, but your nerves have deep, deep memory and being, you know, 46 years old when the accident happened, you know, my nerves had been there for 46 years, you know, like right now I can actually feel the toes that I used to have. I can actually feel like I'm wiggling my toes. Really? It's the most, it's the most insane sensation, but it's absolutely true. In fact, a couple of friends will laugh if they, if they ever hear this. Um, we were sitting in the hotel room or the hotel in the hospital room. I was in bed and we were watching a movie. I, I was incredibly humbled by the amount of people that came to see me and outpouring of support and just love when I got hurt. We were sitting in the hospital room and we're watching a movie and out of nowhere, I felt like I could literally feel the, my two middle toes cross and then cramp up. <laughs> and I had, had absolutely no idea what to do. I mean, I'm like, okay, run my toes, run my they're toes. They're not there. How is this possible? And very quickly it came to me, okay, well, you can't feel pain in two places at the same time. So I started, started punching my leg and it subsided. But for the first, I would say 30 to 40 seconds, it was excruciating. I mean, it was literally excruciating. Now with my hip, my back, you name it. I mean, like I said, you put a finger on me, it was broken. So there's constant pain. With my hip being as messed up as it is, um, I have constant back spasms. Sometimes they're very severe. Sometimes they're very, very mild. But there's constant discomfort. That's why you see me like I'm leaning off to the right. I have to fight it because, you know, my back wants to push to the left or to the right, but I'm trying to hold it up to the left. Uh, my back was broken. I have 12 screws that are in my, in my, uh, in my spine with rods connecting them. My scapula was broken nine, in nine places. It's so much so that, you know, my, the, the left portion of my, uh, shoulder was actually broken for, uh, pushed forward, broken and was never actually able to be set back in place. So like I said, it, it's a, it's constant pain. I don't take painkillers. Usually throughout the day, I can just keep my mind busy with other things, TV. I try to read, whether it be online, uh, magazines, stuff like that. I can barely you know, look through a book. I'm trying. That's one thing that my uh, fiance struggles with me as far as 
I want you to start reading. I want you to start reading more. It's like, okay, well, first off, I have to uh, get past the idea that, you know, my eyesight is already starting to go and she just picked me up a pair of readers, which I still can't believe I'm actually, you know, wearing <laughs> from time to time. You know, it's a matter that, you know, my concentration is not there yet to actually be able to, you know, read through a full paragraph without having to read it three times before I actually understand, you know, what the author is trying to say. So I've got the same issue, not to go too deep into it, but what you're talking about, my eyesight started going bad about a couple of years ago. Gotcha. And uh, that's when I started really kind of dialing it down with the shooting. I was like, all right, God, what do you want me to do? Right. And in 2016, prior to that, man, I was mentally screwed up. Gotcha. And then I went to the doctor and got all the CBC tests, the blood work, and the test came back low in the progesterone, I believe is what it's called. Mm -hmm. So they prescribed me stuff for that. I came off the progesterone quick. As soon as those emotions came back, it was sure. like I walked outside. It took about a week. He said, you're going to be really emotional. He goes, you haven't felt this way in a long time. He's going to sleep real good. Like I walked out and just the color of the sky, it was a blue that I've never seen in my life before. And I, I was like calling him. I was like, Doc, what's wrong with me? I was bawling. He goes, he goes, you got to go through this, man. I was like, no, because I didn't want to deal with some of the stuff that sure. was under there. Sure. But it gave me a really good baseline to work with. Like, man, you're screwed up. Okay, there's work to do. We can do this. And after you and I talked the other day, um, I went and got everything tested again on Monday because about two months ago, I started feeling a little emotional and stuff. Uh, my progesterone was perfect. Everything was perfect. But my tests went from in the last five years, 500 to a 135. Yeah. So now I'm back on testosterone therapy as of two days ago. And the thing about it is the doctors will tell you that some doctors will tell you that, you know, your testosterone as a man, our age needs to be between three and 500. No, your, your testosterone needs to be between 900 to 1200 to feel like we are normal, normally uh, used to feeling. And believe it or not, a lot of people experience this and they think, well, if you go to combat, you're the only one that has PTSD. A lot of us are yeah. traumatized from being a child and it goes back into that balance of being a warrior versus the emotions. Yeah. We suppress stuff, obviously. And then that shuts down the progesterone in the men. Yeah. Well, when that sinks, so does your testosterone. Gotcha. And that is basically what happened to me and it happens to a lot of people. And the studies that I've done, when people go to the VA or the doctor say, you know what, you're just depressed because we get depressed. Here's some depression medication. What yeah. that depression medication does, it might fix a couple things, but it spikes a lot of other yes. things. And that's where the suicide rates and the mental instability that's exactly comes right. from. That's exactly right. And they actually put me on uh, Wellbutrin. At one point in time, and I did not like the way it felt. I pushed it away. I'm like, I'm not taking this stuff. I told the doctor, I said, I'm not taking it. I didn't like the way it made me feel. Once I got back on the testosterone, I stopped crying every time the, uh, what do you call it? The the Sarah, Sarah McLaughlin singing in the background when they're showing the, <laughs> oh, the, uh, the dogs yeah. uh, at the Humane Society yeah. and this, that, and the other. You know, again, I was, my testosterone started getting to the point where I could actually, you know, feel better about the way yeah. I was functioning. So here was something that I had to deal with, and it was just a revelation that came to me in 2016. When I came off of the progesterone, I stayed on the testosterone. Mm -hmm. Well, even since my emotions were suppressed, I went haywire, aggressive and everything. When I finally came off of it, I felt that God wanted me off of it. Yeah. And everything just started tapering off. I think he needed to get a hold of my emotions, get a hold of my aggressiveness and everything. And when I talked to you, I was thinking, man, I don't want to get back on it. 
I really, because I truly feel that he convicted me to come off of it. I literally woke up and this, it wasn't a word. It wasn't a voice. It just said, throw it away. Sure. I knew exactly what it was. He didn't say throw your medication away. I went and threw it in the trash and went cold turkey, knowing the repercussions of the emotions. And I told my wife, I was like, just so you know, God told me to throw my injections away. I said, I might have to go to the doctor because I'll probably be a little pain in the butt to you. My mindset was when I went to the doctor after talking to you, I was like, man, I don't want to get on the progesterone and I don't want to take the test. And then he literally just gave me a revelation. He goes, here's the thing. It's not the testosterone that I wanted to keep you off of. It was the fact you were justifying that, but coming off of the something else that you needed. He goes, right. if you're going to do this, he said, you're going to do it right. And that's when I accepted it and went to the doctor. And I was like, and that's the difference. You have to be able to do it the, the right way. Yes. And there's, there's, again, there's plenty of doctors that are out there that will tell you do it this way when I truly believe in second opinions, 100%, yeah. especially when you're dealing with the VA. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I don't trust the VA. I really don't. I don't go to the VA anymore. My wife I, never understood it until she made me go. And I was like, look, they sent me to a psychologist. And the first questions they asked me is stuff that they don't need to know. Yeah. You know, you know it's funny because the first time that I really dealt with a psychologist was when we were doing the uh, the psych evals for uh, Dev Group. And uh, it was a long, long test. There was a video where Rob O'Neill talks about it. And it's, it's actually true is that pretty much we went, I went through the same thing. Multiple guys went through the same issues as well. This test to where, you know, you have, I can't remember how many, how many questions, but it was literally in the hundreds, if not a couple thousand, but it was, you know, multiple choice. You know, do you like flowers? Yes. Yep. Do you like, um, do you, uh, do you like dogs? Yes. yes. Do you want to strangle a dog with a flower? Uh, no. And you go through this test and the following day you'll meet with the psych. <laughs> And it's funny, I love the way uh, Rob puts it because it's perfect. But, you know, he says he meets with a psych and he says, all right, doc, you know, what, what, how crazy am I? He says, no, 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 sweetheart, we know you're crazy. We're just trying to figure out what flavor of crazy. They're actually testing um, to see how sociopathic you are. Yes. So I was yep. a 28 out of a 30. So basically where they say it, if you're not sociopathic enough, you're not, you can't be there because you're too emotional. Right. If you're too sociopathic over that 30, 32 point thing, we can't have you because you don't have the ability to have compassion. You don't have morals. So the way they choose special forces is uh, psychologically is an ability to switch your emotions on and off yes. and not be affected. Yep. We're already screwed up for whatever reason, whether we're created that way or something traumatic has happened to us in our life that has caused us to be that 100%. way. 100%. Now I will say this, you know, the one thing the vet, the uh, VA did was when I first went to the VA after the accident, I did my psyche eval and it was, was, this was like seven and a half hours of being questioned by the psych and it was over and over and over again, all these questions. They gave me the results the following week. I said, okay, well, what's, you know, what's the deal? Is it, well, it was, it was a face-to-face -face Zoom meeting um, as far as, you know, the whole debrief. And he goes, well, honestly, you, you do have, you do have PTSD. But he goes, honestly, um, not unlike a lot of the special forces guys I've dealt with, you handle it better than 99% of the majority of the uh, um, military personnel is out there. He goes, what do you think that is? Why do, you th why do you think that is? I said, in all honesty, sir, I said, I think it's because of the way we were trained. I said, um, <clears throat> you know, we dealt with things overseas that, you know, and see, saw things that you can't unsee. <laughs> the way we trained... It's not like regular military to where, for example, when you're shooting, when you're, when you're um, practicing close quarters combat or just firearms, 
we're, we're not typically shooting at dots. You know, we come into the room, we do close quarters combat. We're not shooting at squares. We're not shooting at, at uh, cutouts, cardboard yep. cutouts. We're shooting at pictures, two-dimensional yep. pictures of people, pregnant, real people. Pregnant women, children yes, with guns. Everything. And a lot of Changing people up. don't, sorry, a lot of people think that's crazy, but what ends up happening, again, you build a muscle memory of what a bad person is. Good person overseas, you end up getting shot because every woman that I encountered was sitting on an AK. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Almost and every one of them. you get desensitized to yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, we had encountered, I can't say we because it wasn't me, but one of the guys had encountered when we were there in Afghanistan, we were in downtown Kabul. We did a, a supply run. Uh, the woman who did our supply, um, for, who ran supply, we had to escort her sort of in like a PSD protection type of detail um, into town to get certain things to supply to our outstations, people who are guys who are in the little remote areas of Afghanistan. And we'd fly out, resupply them, this, that, and the other. We had a short, we were short a couple guys for the details. So we would typically leave two guys per vehicle. This time we left one guy per vehicle. If you've ever been to downtown Kabul as an American, you have all the little beekeepers coming up to you, you know, in the full burkas, um, trying to sell you things and the kids and this, that, and the other. And he said that at one point he's, you know, dealing with all these people. He's got his weapon in his hand. He said there was this kid in his peripheral that uh, he wasn't really paying attention to because he tried to sell something to him. Really, he looked at him as a, as a non-threat type of thing. And we're talking about a kid that was maybe between seven and 10 years old, if that. And he said he turned his head to the right, turned it to the left. And when he turned it to the left, this kid was holding a revolver, pointing it at his head and pulled the trigger. The gun didn't go off. It was a real gun because the kid was super surprised that the gun didn't go off. And he was kind of frozen, mainly because he has, I can't remember how many kids he has, but he had a child at the time that was about the kid's same age. And he froze. And by the time he started to bring his weapon up, multiple Afghanis had grabbed this kid and pulled him into an alley. And that was the last time that he had, he had saw him. You know, they called the, all the guys back to the, uh, um, back to the vehicles and we took off. When we got back to the States, we tried to requisition multiple companies to make us targets of a child holding an AK-47 or holding a pistol. And the only reason we requisitioned 13 companies was because the first 12 told us to pack sand. And I understand it. Who wants to have their child right. pose for a photo that's going to be shot at by you know the world's special forces? I will say this. It fully desensitizes you to where, put it this way, I'd always questioned how I would react the first time I had to pull the trigger. You know, Would I hesitate? Would, I, would it go through my head what I was about to do? The fact that I was about to take someone's life. And I wasn't, I wasn't skeptical on it. I knew that I could do it. I just didn't know how it was going to affect me and what was going to go through my head at the time that it happened, before, after, you name it. And when the time came, we, we went down on target, uh, went around a, a vehicle, and guy came out, and he had an AK. I took him down. Honestly, I didn't think twice about it. Didn't even, didn't even really register. It was the action, not the action taking place. I knew it did, but I didn't really think about you know, what had happened until I was back on the helicopter and we were taking off out of target. And it didn't really hit me. I was like, huh, okay, yeah, good to go. I knew I knew it was justified. I knew the person was a bad guy. I knew he had a gun. He was coming around the corner. He was going to shoot us. It was a ju- good, just, it was a good justified shot. So again, it was one of those things to where I 
related it to the fact that we were tra- we were trained the right way. We were desensitized the right way. Right. It wasn't like we were like back in they talk about in the movie in the the book on killing Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. Um, not trying to sell his book or anything, but it's a solid book psychologically to read. Guys in Vietnam, they were trained the wrong way. They were not desensitized before they went overseas. And you had a lot of guys who were just basically in foxholes, holding their weapon above their head and shooting at nothing, you know, basically trying to just spray and pray, which probably where the uh, term came from, but was totally different than what we dealt with, the way we were trained. And it worked. It right. worked in our favor. I think a lot of it has to do with, um, like you said, just cause. When you approach something or we approach it out of hate, then we do a lot of things that we shouldn't do. Absolutely. And like I said, when we were overseas, I did things beyond what was necessary, and that's what troubled me the most. I could actually see the evil in me that we were trying to fight. Yeah. So um, super important. Uh, I got a saying, see the sin, not the flesh. Sure. If we see the evil that we're fighting, there should be no praises. There should be no celebrations when an enemy's life is taken. Back in um, Viking times, I guess, they celebrated the victory. But man, you honored the dead on the battlefield because Absolutely. it was a human who had family. And Satan has been waging this war on us since the beginning of time. And as long as he can keep you and I at tips with each other, he's winning. You Absolutely. Know, religion is a big issue across our country. I, I think so, too. I think the, well, the lack thereof, yes. I think, is a, is, a, is a huge issue. One, you know, taking the fathers out of the homes, taking God out of, out of everyone's lives. I think people aren't held responsible or accountable to their actions. And that's, I think, what is what one of the biggest issues is. Not to mention, you know, you have politicians and this and that all making excuses for other people, utilizing, you know, race and utilizing this, that, and the other to justify you know, things. I mean, you have police out there who are doing the job that is unthankful. It's thankless. I mean, I've worked with police up and down. Yes, of course, there's going to be police out there that are guys who were beat up in high school, this, that, and the other, and they want to make a name for themselves. They want to uh, have that level of power. They get off on the power. I understand that. I've seen it. Typically, those guys don't last all that long. At the same time, you have a lot of police who wake up every day and they're doing a job where they pray that they can get home to their children and their family at the end of the day. And they're good people and they're doing a thankless job. You go on on scene, whether it be, put it this way, the two most dangerous calls a police officer will, will respond to is either a traffic stop or domestic abuse. And it has to do with they never know what they're going into. They never know what's going to be behind that door. They never know what's going to be inside that vehicle. They don't know what's waiting for them. It's the two calls that make them pucker, so to speak, the most. And people don't understand that. You know, they want to do the thing where they roll up their window. You know, are you are you detaining me? Are you detaining me? It's it's complete and utter bull. I've been a buho in my life, but I've never had a bad run in. I've had disagreements, but it's literally, man, just give them the respect, let them do their job. Yeah. Even if they're in the wrong, yeah. it can be corrected, but there's no reason to act like that. It was a saying is how you treat me is your character. How I respond is my character. That's exactly right. And there is no such thing. Well, you did this to me, so I'm going to do this to you. That's like such a third grade childlike mindset that yep. so many people have. And take responsibility only for your actions. And man, the world would definitely change. When I went to Alabama uh, about a year ago, year and a half to work with that program, they picked me up from the airport and this gentleman was driving and this car just swerves out in front of us. And he just real calmly says, he goes, he has no idea who's in this car. 
And mm -hmm. I looked at him, I was like, no, he doesn't. He goes, the point of this is he's got his own troubles. Sure. Even if he was raised like that, it's nothing personal. Mm -hmm. Even if you and I have a disagreement and we get into a yelling match, it's not personal. It's how we've been taught to respond. Sure through feelings and emotions sure. and Satan definitely uses our emotions against us. That really hit me hard. And that's something I use when I try to help people out is it's not personal. One thing I always teach people uh, that I taught that I, whenever I'm teaching civilians, especially in interacting with authority figures or interacting with uh, daily situations that could come up, I always talk about traffic stops. It's a perfect example about, you know, how you act definitely affect the outcome of that situation. And I always tell him, okay, you know what? Here's the deal. Put yourself in the police officer's position. He has no idea what's in, what's in that vehicle. He has no idea what's waiting for him. You know, there are certain situations where police officer comes up. They have multiple times where the door opens and they have drug dealers that have actually mounted shotguns in the uh, door, in the door frame that are actually aimed right at the, uh, at the police officer's legs and can take them out. I saw a picture of that about a week and a half ago. It's interesting that you say that. It was in the uh, trunk. They yep. literally pulled the seat down, wired it to where when they opened the trunk, it pulled the trigger. Yep. So I always tell people, hey, you know what? First off, if a cop comes up behind you, typically a reason why he's pulling you over. Yes, you know what? There are cops out there that, you know, bad cops, whatever. Nine times out of 10, if they're pulling you over, you did something that you shouldn't have. Whether it be a lane change, help uh, Christy at one point, she pulled, I, I honestly, I couldn't believe that the, the police officer pulled us over for this, but she made a right-hand turn. And instead of going into this, the, uh, the first lane, she went over two oh, lanes, nice. uh, two, one lane over or two lanes or whatever it was, but the police officer pulled us over, came up alongside and I told her to do exactly what she did. And it was fine. Basically, all I said was this, I said, pull the car over immediately or as soon as it's safe to do so. But at the same time, try to keep in mind the police officer's safety. If you can pull into a parking lot, even better. Because the police officer has to worry about getting out of the vehicle and staying along the side of your vehicle while being in traffic. There's a lot of people that you know are on their phone, don't pay attention to it, and don't give that, you know, that one lane of berth, so to speak, for the police officer to be safe. So make sure he's safe, first off. Put that into account. Roll the windows down all the windows in the yes. vehicle, um, turn the car off. I'll even go so far as to pull the keys out of the ignition and put them on the uh, windowsill. And then I will make sure everyone in the vehicle, their, their hands are visible, whether it be on the, you as a driver on the wheel, the passenger on the steering, on the uh, dashboard or the passengers in the back seat on the, the headrests. If you are carrying, if you have a weapon in the vehicle as a driver, put your hands I put them out the window, not like, you know, reaching, but basically so they're visible out the window. And what it is, is if you try and do everything to make that police officer as comfortable as possible, yep. nine times out of 10, he's going to see that, understand it, and he's going to be more, more likely to let you off. Yeah. The and added, not draw a gun on you. <laughs> exactly. The other thing is, if it's at night, turn all the interior lights yep. on in the vehicle. You know, stay in the vehicle. Don't try and get out or anything like that. As soon as the police officer come alongside, especially if you're carrying, let them know, sir, before we start, I am carrying. The weapon is is is, is where it is. Let them know the, the, the location of, the, of the, uh, the weapon. If he asks you to reach for anything, either, you yep. know, your driver's license, registration, all that, say, officer, it's the, the driver's license is in the console. It's in my pocket. It's in the uh, glove compartment. 
I, I need to reach for. Is that all right? Yep. yep, go for it. You make him feel comfortable. The more comfortable you make him feel, the better off you're going to be within that interaction. So that is textbook and not only how I teach it, of how I perform it every single time. The only thing I Absolutely. do differently is when I put my hands out, palms are up, and I've got my CCW on the top of my license That's fanned very out. That's very it's not smart. to say that they can see it, but again, they see two IDs. They're like, okay, but I go through that. I mean, that is like textbook. Couldn't get any better advice on that. But getting back to the VA... Um, with regards to the VA, <laughs> man, I, and this is one thing I, I definitely wanted to come back to. I have major issues with the VA and it has to do with how broken the system is. I was very, very fortunate to have the ability to utilize what they call the Community Care Act. This is something that President Trump put into place. And what it is, is typically with the VA, if you are trying to get a surgery, whatever the case may be, a lot of times it'll take six to nine months, yep. sometimes longer before you're actually able to even see a doctor. If that's the case, what President Trump put into place is, like I said, the Community Care Act to where you're able to go outside the VA and the VA will pay for it. Well, that's what I was able to do. I was actually, after the uh, accident, I was able to go down to the Center for the Intrepid to get my uh, prosthetics, for you know, to be able to walk again, this, that, and the other. And it was therapy that I was not going to be able to get through the VA here. Plus, the, the fact of the matter was, you know, where I live... The VA, the closest VA, is 45, almost an hour away. When I was there at the Center for the Intrepid, I was staying at the Fisher House, which was literally less than a five-minute walk from the Fisher House to the, uh, the Center for the Intrepid. So it was, it was nothing. It was, it was perfect. I was down there for a year, going through it. While I was there, again, did not take any pain meds unless I was having a surgery or something like that that was recovering from, but they were prescribing me Marinol. Marinol is liquid THC. It's at the level of... Uh, legal of legality, as far as it was the legal limit, it was if they're little pearls, it's liquid THC. I try to get that through the through the VA, they won't prescribe it. Yeah, that's that medicine, man. Yeah, uh, when I went to the used to go to the VA, I would go in there and watch those old timers, and they would come out with no joke, oh, dude. a gallon baggie of just bottles of prescriptions, and it's like. If you take one pill with another yep. one at the wrong time, yep. it creates a toxic chemical in the body. And what we learned overseas is from our doctors is a lot of the heart problems that were happening in the Middle East were due to the medications that were prescribed being 100%. taken at the same time. 100%. It was causing heart issues. Not They didn't have heart issues. It was the medications that they were taking for blood pressure and something else. And instead of spanning them out a couple hours, they were taking them together and it was killing them. 100%. Medi yep. Medicine is not... 100% science and is very dangerous. It took, uh, I was on gabamentin, which back then was a really good pill. Now they're saying that's horrible. <laughs> and, For nerve pain, it's it, it works. However, there are drawbacks to it. They say if you take it too much, it increases your propensity for, for suicide. It also increases your uh, propensity for gaining weight. So I will take it because the nerve pain is exactly what I'm dealing with with regards to the phantom limb pain. I'll only take it at night before I go to bed. And it's just basically to keep my legs from what I call pinging. And like I said, I don't take pain meds. But my back, because I started working out, I started doing the physical therapy and stuff like that. I started going, to, started having to go to the VA. Now, like I said, I where I live, and this is not unlike a lot of personalities that have to deal with the VA, especially in this area. Because where we live, it's far enough away from the, the uh, Dallas VA and the Fort, Fort Worth VA. They send us to a clinic, a small clinic, a small VA clinic. 
Honestly, this place is the equivalency of working for Delta Airlines <laughs> and having to go and do your time working at working in lost luggage. You know, they don't send the best people there. And when you're there, you're not in the best mood. And the level of care you get is horrible. Now, granted, there are good people there, but I will 100% say that I've had three primary care physicians there. And the first two I fired because they were complete and utter morons. Per example, and just to prove that I'm not, you know, just biased and not a complete dick, um, I was having back spasms very, very bad to the point where you have times, there were times when I would try and pull myself out of bed and my back would, would go into spasm. I'd just drop and kind of wait for about an hour. You know, it would subside and then I would tr- very slowly try and get up and I'd be able to get up over time. There was one point in time when I couldn't even move. It was just basically, I was not even trying to get up and my back was just going into spasm over and over and over again. It was coming in waves. It was happening to the point where I had to go to the hospital locally to be put on meds and IV um, um, painkillers to get my back to uh, calm down. When it started to come back again, just little by little, I went out to the Denton Clinic, told him what was going on. I explained to the doctor. This is the first time I've met the guy. But granted, I had I had, had a, in the system all my meds, all the uh, surgeries I'd done, x-rays, you name it. And this had to do with the fact that my hip is completely screwed up to the point where I need a hip replacement. In the accident, my hip was blown apart. Thank God I was brought to Parkland uh, Hospital because the doctor that put my hip back together, he used the procedure on my hip that's actually named after him. I had the right guy for the job, put it that way. But he told me that not long, within a, he said between five and 10 years, maybe sooner, you're going to need a hip replacement. Well, it was sooner. Because the hip is almost solidified in my body, um, and there's arthritis all throughout the joint, it causes back spasms all throughout my back, but starts at the hip and goes again all the way up to my spine, and it's excruciating. Honestly, I would not you know, wish on my worst enemy. I went to the Denton Clinic. I'm like, look, I can deal with the pain throughout the day. I just need something so that I can sleep. The lack of sleep was what was kicking the back spasms into play more and more and more. I said, look, I said, one, I can't do um, hydrocodone because it's messing with my uh, my kidneys. I don't really like oxy. Taking oxycodone after uh, after surgeries, I said, I'll take it. If that's, if that's the only option, but at a low dose, I said, I would like to do something like Toradol or something like that to where it's not as addictive. It doesn't have the, I don't like to be loopy around my son and around the kids and stuff like that. So I wanted something that was low grade, but it was only going to be taken at night. So I wasn't asking for, you know, bottles of it. Like the VA used to give to people who didn't yeah. even, didn't even want it. And he looked at me and he's like, well, have you ever tried ibuprofen? <laughs> I about jumped out of the seat, you know, with no legs. My fiance sitting next to me, she had to, had to hold me back because I was going to throat punch this dude. I'm sitting there almost in tears talking about how bad the pain is, even sitting there right then. And I'm, I had been going for like two weeks, you know, with no painkillers, no nothing. And I was almost on no sleep and it was really affecting my mood, everything. And this jackass is telling me to take Motrin. I'm like, seriously? And uh, I fired him, fired him on the spot. And then I find out from... His nurses, the nurse practitioner that works below him, who she had been the nurse practitioner for my other primary care physician. 
she called me and said, what was the, what was the problem with uh, Dr. So-and-so? I'm like, I told her. She goes, okay. She goes, look, I'm going to tell you something, but you, know, you didn't hear it from me. She goes, this guy has been here for three months and he's been getting complaints for the last two and a half. He made it very clear to everybody when he showed up that his job, his goal was he was going to get all of his patients off painkillers. And I'm like, that's not his position. That's not his job. I said, his job is to treat people who actually need to be treated. It's a great idea. I mean, it'd be oh, it's, it's a, it's a great it. idea if, if you can actually do it. But the fact of the matter is there are people that actually need, need it. Yeah. Because you, if you're not in pain that much, like I can speak for myself, I was not sleeping. I mean, I sleep, my sleep is, is bad enough. And it was affecting me to the point where I wasn't sleeping at all. And I was just miserable. And it was kicking my, uh, um, uh, my seizures in, into, uh, into, into uh, high gear, which I've only had a, a very small number of uh, grand mal seizures. But in January of 2019, I started having what they call focal seizures. And that's pretty much where your body just goes catatonic for about a minute and a half. You don't really have much memory of it. And you can actually work through it. You can actually be doing something and continue to do it, but it's like you you kind of revert to almost like three year old type of uh, mentality. Yeah, when I got out in two thousand seven, from two thousand seven to two thousand ten, I was um, training in jujitsu mm-hmm. and I was amateur bodybuilding. I was prepping for my first contest when I broke my arm, and at that up to that point, my entire body was really strong, my core, sure. but for a whole year for the recovery from arm because I shattered it so bad. I lost 27 pounds in the first 30 days from the morphine that they had me on. I was about 12 to 14% body fat. I was pretty tight. That's when all my back issues started. Mm -hmm. So everything started bulging. And now they, or they had put me on tramadol and I went in blind. I trusted them. I didn't do my research and it took my mom a couple years later to kind of recognize my demeanor. Nothing bad. Sure. I was just real slothful when I was around them. So she started looking up the medication. She goes, you do realize you're on an opiate. It's an opiate family. I said, no, it's not. It's just a nerve pill. No, it's just a family. It's an opiate. So she showed me and I was like, boy, I was flipped my lid. I went back to the VA without even an appointment. I said, I went off this medication. I said, you guys didn't tell me it was an opiate. I said, find something else. And they said, you've been on it too long. We can't. Without going through a big process sure. of detoxing. So I went to an outside doctor. It was funny. She was an oriental lady. And I said, hey, you know, I'm on tramadol. And before I could finish, she goes, oh, you want pain meds? I said, no, 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 no. I want to come off of these pain meds. She's like, oh, okay. Because she, I guess she had prescribed a lot of pain medication. She gave me this gel. And it's actually for arthritis. It's called a Voltaren. I don't remember. Transdermal? Yes, Gotcha. That's one of them, actually. So it's a cream I put on my back to handle the pain, but I had no idea how reliant my body was on that pill because it. I shook for two weeks. Oh, yeah. It was like freezing in the water and buds. Your hips were locking up, just decoxing where I couldn't even take it. I wasted that entire tube in less than a week. And she goes, that should have lasted you about two months. I said, I'm sorry. You know, they wouldn't help me come off of it. She goes... Only thing I can do is put you on something else, and then we had to detox you off that. She goes, just suck it up. And I said, all right. It's and it's, it's insane. I would not go back on medication in that manner. Unless I had, I had, to. I had from the same kind of experience. It was actually after I left the hospital. Now, I was in the hospital for roughly about three and a half months after the accident. They had me initially on morphine, oxycodone, and I had Dilaudid Ooh. every 
Oh, I loved Dilaudid. The lot is phenomenal. So if, you, if anybody doesn't know, that's actually what they knock you out uh, to do the surgeries, yes. right? Okay. Uh, yeah, yes. A lot of yeah. That's one of them anyway. Yeah, Dilaudid is like a warm and fuzzy blanket when it when it, when it gets injected into your into your veins. Yeah, I loved Dilaudid. It was it was amazing. Um, but that was on it was like a two hour window to where it was like you could you had access to it every two hours if needed. And the I, the first month, I would not let my son come up and see me, and it had to do with the fact that I had you know wound vacs that were pulling fluid out of uh, out of my body. Um, I swelled like crazy. Um, I had you name it wires, tubes. Kind of, I didn't want to. I didn't want my son to see me like that. So I waited for about a month before I let him come up, and it was hard because you know I missed him. I mean, incredibly, probably one of the hardest things I ever done. He's without a doubt my life. He's you asked, you know, what why what drives me? He's what drives me. A thousand percent. Granted, Christy is without a doubt my rock, but he is my base. He is what I live for. You know, I have, you know, I have many times thought about suicide. Many times. And every time, you know, if that thought ever creeps in my head, I push it right back out for, you know, for a couple of reasons. One, I would never in a million years do it to him. As I sit there and talk to Daniel, I couldn't help but see and hear the pain that he is dealing with, not only physically, but emotionally for various reasons. The short time that I've been fortunate enough to help others find their way to Christ, I've noticed there are two main reasons we hold back. Fear and pride. Fear because we aren't sure God will accept us. Satan tricks us into thinking God will not forgive us for all the things we've done known to the world, and what is still hidden in our closets. Secondly, pride. Pride causes us to not want to come to God because we want to be able to do this on our own. After all, how can we live the way we have throughout our lives and then allow Jesus Christ, the only sinless man who ever walked this earth, the one God himself sent to die for you and I, to take these burdens from us and be punished? How can we let anyone carry that load? There is nothing that God will not forgive you for. Your soul is the most valuable thing here on earth, in existence. Luke 15.10 says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Think about that. When you come to God, He does not chastise you. He does not yell at you, say, I told you so, or take off His belt. Rather, the angels in heaven rejoice over you. How great is that? How important could you really be? Right now, the angels are looking down over the edge of heaven watching you, wondering, is this the moment we get to rejoice? Is this the moment Satan loses the battle for this person's soul? Tomorrow is not promised to you and I. We may not make it to sunset or sunrise, but through Christ you can reestablish your relationship with God the creator of all, and have your name written in the book of life so that you can spend eternity in his presence, so that you can have the peace you've been seeking for so long. It is possible. It's yours if you want it, but there is a price. You must come to God in prayer, repent of your sins, and turn from your sins. Accept Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, putting your salvation in him and him alone. Make no mistake. You will experience trials and tribulations. Scripture tells us this because Satan is the ruler of this world for now. But Scripture also ensures us to take heart that Christ has overcome death 
and he will return one day to rule, and you and I will stand beside him. The peace you've been seeking, that hole you've been trying to fill with new adventures your entire life, that feeling of never fitting into this world no matter how hard you try, there's a reason behind it. And there is only one thing that can fill it. That is the Spirit of God. The Spirit you were created to have. That relationship with your Creator. God has made it possible through His love for you and I to receive Him through faith in Christ. If you're ready to accept Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and reestablish your relationship with God, I want you to pray with me. A prayer of salvation. I want you to say this out loud, after me, and mean it from your heart. Imagine that you're talking to God Himself, because you really are. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner, and I ask for Your forgiveness. I have sinned against You in so many ways, and for so long. I don't want to live this way anymore. I ask that you take this life and make it what you desire, Lord. I believe that you are the Son of God, that you died for my sins and rose from the grave. I turn from my sins, Lord, and accept you as my personal Lord and Savior. I invite you to come into my heart and my life. I want to trust you and you alone as my future, my Lord, and my Savior. It's in your name I pray. Amen. If you said this prayer, rest assured that God has heard you, and right now His angels are truly rejoicing, and that you belong to the kingdom of heaven. Satan has no more power over you, your family, or your home. I would ask that you seek out baptism. Baptism does not grant you salvation. Only faith in Jesus Christ gives us that. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward feeling. We are saying that the blood of Jesus has washed my sins away. I have been reborn of His Spirit, and I am committing my life to Christ taking up my cross daily, and following Him. If there is something you're struggling with, send us a message and we'll answer your questions here on the podcast. Until next time, be blessed. There is a war being waged right now for your soul that has been going on since the beginning of time. A war that started out of jealousy for God's creation, you and I. A war for power, and the enemy will stop at nothing. He seeks to kill steal, and destroy everything that God has created through you. It is time that you put on the whole armor of God that you may stand against the schemes of the devil.